Hey, Justin here. Wanted to take a sec before we jump into the story this time to say a couple of things. First, make sure you listen through the end of this episode. I have big news for you that I've been dying to share for months now. You are going to love it, and it's coming up right after the story. Second, toward the end of last season, I let you know that the only way for Holy Ghost Stories to exist is for people like you to come alongside me on Patreon to enable me to do this work. Uh, Patreon's an online platform that enables passionate fans to financially support the creative work they care about. So back in March, I launched the Holy Ghost Stories Patreon account and set a goal of 40 patrons by the end of that season, which you obliterated in three days. So we set a new goal of 100 patrons by the end of that season, and you met that one too. Amazing. To those of you who are patrons, I truly can't thank you enough. You are why I've been able to tell the stories of Jonah and Elisha and Deborah and Samson and Nebuchadnezzar so far this season. There are fantastic stories coming this month and next, and I'm already making plans for season three and beyond. But in order to make that happen, we've got to grow the team. If patronage continues to grow, we can make Holy Ghost Stories financially viable for me to continue devoting my energy to it in a full-time way. That means more stories for you, more moments in the worlds of these women and men from Scripture, and more time with Yahweh. I love spending this time just being with Him, and it's been a joy hearing from so many of you who love being with Him in these stories too. So let's keep this going, shall we? There are so many more stories to tell. With that in mind, I've set an audacious goal of 200 patrons by the end of this season, 200 of us standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, hey, the world needs more content like this, declaring with my time and your hard-earned money that the children of God have the best stories, and those stories should be told well. If we get to 200 by episode 10 of this season, this is episode 7, so we can't dilly-dally, I've got some fun ideas of how to celebrate and say thank you. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash holyghoststories, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash holyghoststories. Thanks, everybody. And now, I hope you enjoy The Guardian Angel, The Blowhard, and The Reformer. Where do you go when you're scared? What we reach to for comfort or security can tell us a lot about what's inside us. Sometimes, of course, this revelation is painful. This is a story for the sometimes faithful, for those who try and fail and try again. It's a story about how hard it can be to trust God and about how important it is to do so. And it's a story about the way a loving father responds to his child when that child finally asks for help. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. slicing crisp and confident through the air, urging the team of horses forward. 
They pull against the ropes, leaning with every ounce of their massive strength, the veins in their legs swollen, their necks bathed in sweat. Shouts of guidance, encouragement, and caution mix with the sounds of pounding hooves and grinding stone. Finally, the altar to Marduk gives way. Section after section of intricately carved limestone tumbles to the ground, yanked downward by an unseen hand. Silence. The horses heave, the workers wipe their brows, and the king smiles. The 25-year-old Hezekiah, new to Judah's throne and eager to follow Yahweh more closely than his father, is just getting started. In the months to come, King Hezekiah will tear down dozens of high places like this. He'll cut down Asherah poles and smash sacred stones, one idolatrous altar after another, raised, scraped from Yahweh's earth. And then, in the culmination of his campaign to restore worship of the one true God, Hezekiah seizes Nehushtan, the bronze serpent created during the Exodus by Moses at Yahweh's instruction. At some point, what began as a sign of Yahweh's saving power became an object of worship itself. A dark irony, but one that would find itself repeated time and again for years to come. The human beings are drawn to worship, and sometimes an invisible God just doesn't feel like enough. We grasp and enthrone, and when our idols disappoint us, we do it again. Enough of this. Hezekiah orders the serpent heated to the temperature at which bronze becomes brittle, takes an enormous hammer, and smashes the idol to pieces. In these early years, Hezekiah's leadership brings about relative success and prosperity for Judah, a much-needed morale boost given the Assyrian Empire's looming might and their imposition of vassal state status on Judah and the surrounding regions. And then, 14 years into Hezekiah's reign, inspired perhaps by encouragement from Egypt and a swelling tide of rebellion concurrent with the ascension of a new, potentially weak Assyrian emperor named Sennacherib, Hezekiah refuses to pay tribute to Judah's overlord. When Pharaoh promises to help if there's any trouble, Hezekiah accepts the partnership. Yahweh explicitly forbade an alliance with Egypt, but this is an extenuating circumstance. His father would say it was practical. Before long, Hezekiah finds his faith tested even more dramatically when Sennacherib, incensed by this Western rebellion, easily swats away Egypt and comes knocking on Judah's door. Sennacherib, it turns out, is not a weak emperor. Just when it looks as though the kingdom he inherited from his father Sargon is in danger of fracturing irreparably, he marches north and then east and then west with the full force of the Assyrian army, putting down one rebellious faction after another. He conquers the rebels in the Iranian lowlands, lays waste to Elam and the rebel kings in the northern arc of the Fertile Crescent. He turns then to Judah, the southern kingdom of the Hebrews, sitting there beside the decimated Israel, reminding Sennacherib of his father's failure to finish the job of subjugating the Jews. 
Judah is the last rebel holdout in this westward region of the empire. It's time to reassert Assyria's manifest destiny. The shores of the Mediterranean are calling. Sennacherib marches southwest with an army 200,000 strong. Picking the low-hanging fruit first, he bullies the lesser walled cities of Judah into submission. Even the Philistine stronghold of Ekron proves powerless against Assyria's might. Meanwhile, Hezekiah, watching the dominoes fall, launches into action. The king sets about fortifying Jerusalem's walls, thicker, stronger, better able to withstand the kind of siege for which Assyria is famous. He manufactures an entire armory's worth of new swords and shields. And then, anticipating the long-term presence of an enemy outside his gates, Hezekiah initiates a brilliant project, a tunnel to divert the fresh water supply from springs outside the city to a pool inside the city. If they're successful, it will bolster his people's survival within the walls while effectively cutting off any invaders from water access of their own. But there's little time, so Hezekiah orders the diggers to begin at opposite ends and meet in the middle. There is no room for error, and so this is no small challenge. Miraculously, it works. When the pickaxes of the exhausted men finally break through the solid rock, they reveal the lamplight of the other team. Excited yelps echo off the tunnel walls, but there's no time to celebrate. Word is that Sennacherib has finally arrived at Lachish, a principal Jewish city less than 25 miles away. Jerusalem will be next. At Lachish, the Assyrians do what they do best, besieging the city in expert fashion. First, the colossal army camped outside the gates, workers begin forming mud bricks, baking them in the sun thousands at a time. These bricks, along with gathered stones and shoveled dirt, are then formed into huge ramps leading up to the walls. This takes weeks, months even. Meanwhile, of course, food supply lines from outside the city are entirely cut off. Starvation moves into Lakish like a rising tide. The sound of wailing drifts over the city walls as men and women mourn the deaths of their emaciated children. Where are they supposed to bury them? Archers, and everyone with a makeshift bow becomes an archer, rain down arrows on the Assyrians, but most of them are camped safely out of range and the ramp builders are shielded by soldiers standing guard beside them. Still, a well-shot arrow can take the life of an unsuspecting Assyrian, and many do. Eventually, though, metal for arrowheads becomes scarce inside the walls. In a sobering act of vengeance, parents take the bones of their dead sons and daughters, carve them into lethal spikes, affix them to arrow shafts, and send them sailing into the necks of their attackers. But Assyria persists. Now their great siege engines, essentially armored carts, come battering rams, come chariots, pushed by men rather than pulled by horses, finally lurch forward up the ramps. The defenders, of course, hurl fire from above to set the engines ablaze, but Assyria has anticipated this and covered the moving fortresses in wet animal hides. 
They even have a man stationed aboard each vehicle to douse any flames with an onboard supply of water. At the front of each siege engine, a protruding attachment, heavy and pointed, waits to be rammed into a gap or crack in the wall, then used to wrest the stones loose and create a breach. Archers follow behind, punishing anyone foolish enough to expose themselves while they attempt to mount a defense. Meanwhile, giant ladders are being erected all along the walls. Soon, the order sounds and wave after wave of Assyrians climb up toward the ramparts like swarms of fire ants. Eventually, the beleaguered Lakish falls to Sennacherib's unstoppable war machine. He leads away thousands of weeping Judeans as prisoners, their commandeered possessions stacked atop carts pulled by bulls, their surviving children sitting atop the cartloads, too small to know the fullness of these horrors. A mercy. In the face of Sennacherib's inevitable attack on Jerusalem, Hezekiah's confidence falters. He sends a delegation to Lachish with a message for the Assyrian king. I have done wrong. Please withdraw from me. Whatever you demand from me, I will pay. Smelling blood in the water, Sennacherib sends a message back, demanding 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold from King Hezekiah. These are staggering amounts. To scrape together the tribute, Hezekiah empties his royal treasury. But it's not enough. Where can he find more? No. As soon as the idea occurs to him, he dismisses it, surely. But there is no other way. Strip them, he tells his men. And at the king's orders, they set to work ripping the gold off the doors and the tiered door frames of Yahweh's temple in order to prepare a pleasing sacrifice to Sennacherib. Yahweh watches this act of allegiance and says nothing. Sennacherib's appeasement, though, doesn't last long. In time, he sends a delegation to Hezekiah, his supreme commander, known as the Tartan, his chief officer, called Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, his multilingual field commander. Just outside of Jerusalem, the Tartan and the Rabsaris stand menacingly while the Rabshakeh calls for the king. Instead, Eliakim, Hezekiah's palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, the court historian, come out to meet the Assyrian delegation. Atop the city wall, a crowd of onlookers gathers to eavesdrop. The Rabshakeh shouts to the three Judean officials, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? 
Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Then a smile, perhaps, crosses his lips. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? No, that's not... Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. Surrender, and I will give you two thousand horses, if you can find enough riders for them. If Hezekiah's officials are on their heels at this point, what the Rabshakeh says next cuts them to the quick. And another thing, Sennacherib says, I wonder if you think I've come to attack and destroy this place of my own will. No, no. Yahweh himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Could that be true? Please, Eliakim and his colleagues beg at this point, glancing up at the crowd on the wall. Speak to us in Aramaic. We understand it, and our people do not. Please, for the sake of privacy, say nothing else in Hebrew. Oh, I'm sorry, yells the Rabshakeh in Hebrew. Did you think it was only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, will soon have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? The cheeks of the Judean officials flush red as their heart rates pick up speed. But Sennacherib's Rabshakeh is not finished. He stands tall and shouts up to the wall this time. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on Yahweh by saying certainly Yahweh will rescue us. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. Hezekiah is lying to you when he says Yahweh will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations ever rescued this land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ivava? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? So will Yahweh rescue Jerusalem from my power? The Rabshakeh waits, glaring up at the people on the wall, daring them to speak. But silence is all he's given in return. Hezekiah has commanded his people not to say a word. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, their hearts in their throats, turn and walk back into the city, while the Rabshakeh, the Tartan, and the Rabsaras scoff, excited to tell Sennacherib how small they made the Judeans feel. And they won't be wrong. On the way back to the palace, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah are so upset, they rip their clothes, the tearing fabric a mirror of what's happening inside them what's happening to the Jewish nation at the hands of Sennacherib. How can Jerusalem survive this?
In his throne room, Hezekiah listens to his officials relate, verbatim, the words of Sennacherib's men. Before they're done, Hezekiah has torn his own clothes. He replaces them with sackcloth and goes straight to Yahweh's temple. At the same time, he sends a message to the prophet Isaiah. Today is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. Perhaps Yahweh, your God, will hear all the words of the king of Assyria, who mocks the living God, and rebuke him for the words that Yahweh, your God, has heard. Please, pray for us. Isaiah listens to the king's message, borne on the lips of the officials and priests, all of them clothed in burlap. Finally, Hezekiah understands that Pharaoh is no savior. A failure to look to their God led Judah into this pit. Only trust in Yahweh can get them out. The king's messengers soon discover that Yahweh has already given Isaiah a response to share with Hezekiah. Tell your master, Yahweh says this, don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, the words with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I am about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return in fear to his own land, where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Yes, farewell to Sennacherib. Sennacherib does leave the area, but not for long. He's delayed in marching on Jerusalem as he extinguishes fires of rebellion in other parts of the region, but he sends a letter to Hezekiah. Don't let that God that you think so much of keep stringing you along with the line, Jerusalem will never fall to the king of Assyria. That's a barefaced lie. You know the track record of the kings of Assyria, country after country laid waste, devastated, and what makes you think you'll be an exception? Take a good look at these wasted nations. Did their gods do them any good? There's nothing left of them but bones. Sweat gathers on Hezekiah's brow as he reads the letter. What about what Yahweh said about getting rid of Sennacherib? Did he change his mind? Did he try and fail? Maybe Egypt can regroup and, and join them in another alliance, and, and together their forces will be able to... If Hezekiah begins brainstorming like this, his conscience interrupts and complicates things. And what of Yahweh? He's just so unpredictable. And unpredictable doesn't work when you have a nation hanging in the balance. But maybe unpredictable is the wrong word. What would the right word be? Autonomous? Yahweh has his own mind. And perhaps it's not a bad thing that his ways aren't always congruent with Hezekiah's wisdom. Hezekiah's wisdom has gotten Israel into this situation. And they need to get out. King Hezekiah is on his knees. He bends forward 
hands trembling as he unrolls the scroll on the shining floor of the holy place in the temple of Yahweh. The distinct smell of cedar emanates from the panels on the walls and mingles with the scent of the incense burning on the altar at the foot of the veil. You could blindfold Hezekiah and bring him here, and with one breath, he'd know where he was. On all fours now, hovering over the letter he's spread out before Yahweh, the king pauses, perhaps, to read again the message from Sennacherib. Don't let that god you think so much of keep stringing you along. Is that what Yahweh is doing? Hezekiah's fingers find themselves perhaps in a slight indentation in the floor. It's overlaid in brilliant gold, this floor, and the relatively soft metal is rife with evidence of generations of worship. Slight depressions and troughs left by the sandals of prophets, priests, and kings, all the way back to Solomon, who built this temple, a fulfillment of his father David's dreams of a beautiful house for Yahweh. And now, the kingdom they led will crumble on Hezekiah's watch. Even now, he can hear the thunderous trundling of the Assyrian army's carts and chariots, the clatter of their armor and swords and siege engines as they approach the city walls and make camp. What happened to the fervor of his early years? How does the king who pulverizes the nation's idols find himself making an idol of Egypt or any other army who looks strong enough to save Jerusalem and feels closer than their relentlessly invisible God? Hezekiah's eyes moisten as the fear and the stress of the last several weeks mix with sorrow and regret. One by one, the king's tears fall like the first drops of a cleansing rain onto the scroll beneath him. Yahweh watches as the wet splotches smear the script of Sennacherib's letter, the Assyrian king's arrogant words washed away by the tears of a penitent child who's come, finally, to his father for help. Yahweh, Hezekiah prays, God of Israel, seated in majesty on the cherubim throne, you are the one and only God, sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, maker of heaven, maker of earth. Open your ears, Yahweh, and listen. Open your eyes and look. Look at this letter Sennacherib has sent, a brazen insult to the living God. The facts are true, Yahweh. The kings of Assyria have laid waste to countries and kingdoms. Huge bonfires they made of their gods. Their idols made from wood and stone. But now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from raw Assyrian power. Make all the kingdoms on earth know that you are Yahweh, the one and only God. Just then, a messenger arrives with word from Isaiah. Yahweh has a message for you. You've prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I've heard your prayer. Hezekiah's heart rises.
Yahweh's message continues, but the rest of it isn't directed to Hezekiah. Not exactly. It's directed to Sennacherib, but it's for Hezekiah and all of those, perhaps, who experience bullying. Yahweh does not like for his children to be bullied. Who do you think it is you've insulted? Yahweh says to the Assyrian king who's ridiculed Hezekiah. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. You have mocked Yahweh through your messengers. You've bragged about your exploits on mountains and in forests and rivers. Have you not heard? I designed all of this. Long, long ago, I drew up the plans, and now I've brought it to pass. You have crushed fortified cities into piles of rubble. You've left their people dispirited, slumped shoulders, limp souls. But I know when you sit down, when you come and when you go. And yes, I've marked every one of your temper tantrums against me. Because your blasphemous, foul temper and arrogance have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. Then Yahweh turns to Hezekiah and says, He will not enter the city, nor shoot so much as a single arrow here. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Sennacherib's jagged script is now further obscured as new tears fall from Hezekiah's cheeks, his smiling eyes full of wonder and gratitude. He will sleep well tonight. But when the sun goes down, the Assyrians camped outside Jerusalem's walls will find themselves in a living nightmare. Sleeping soldiers cover the hills surrounding Jerusalem, tens of thousands of them, maybe 200,000. Soldiers of Assyria, soldiers of the army with the upper hand, soldiers with nothing to fear, or so they think. No one will ever know exactly how it happens, except for the few who survive, and they will never speak of it, trying for the rest of their lives to forget what happens tonight. The Israelite Book of the Kings will record, however, that it will be the angel of Yahweh who does it. Silently, he stalks through the Assyrian camp. Does he use a sword? And strikes down one bloodthirsty invader. A dozen. Six hundred of Sennacherib's men sprawled breathless in their beds. 2,000. Is it bloody? 10,000. How much time does this take? 50,000 killed. 
Finally, the angel of Yahweh disappears from among the tents, leaving behind 185,000 dead. When what's left of the army awakens in the morning, shouts of alarm give way to cries of grief as the survivors realize the extent of the carnage. Sennacherib holds his head in his hands, perhaps spinning around deliriously as he tries to make sense of this massacre. Retreat, he tells those who are still alive. Go. At home in Nineveh, Sennacherib visits the temple of his god, Nisroch. And what does he say as he prays to this god of his? Does he shout aloud to it in anger? Does he cry in anguish? Does he cut himself, offering his own blood to win its withdrawn favor? Is he confused when he hears nothing? Does he notice the marks of the stonemasons or carpenter's chisels on the curves of his god? Does he think it a strange thing to worship something created? If his mind wanders to Yahweh, if he thinks for even a split second about worshiping the god of the Hebrews, reason gets the better of him. Surely it was a coincidence, a fluke, that slaughter. A sickness, perhaps, a, a coalition of allies who snuck into their camp, maybe. It could not have been a god. There is no god who is a match for the great. At that moment, the door of the temple bursts open and Sennacherib turns to see the faces of his sons, Adramelech and Sharazer, lips curled, murder in their eyes, and swords in their right hands. In moments, Sennacherib is alone in the temple again, this time fully prostrate before his god, his robes stained red as they soak up his pooling blood. In Judah, the mighty king of Assyria asked if anyone could rescue Judah from his power. This, it seems, is a clear answer. What is it like to bury 185,000 people at once? As you grasp the wrists or the ankles of yet another young man, do you shed a tear for his mother? Shoveling dirt onto the gristly beard of the man who would have raped your wife if he'd made it into the city, do you feel satisfaction? Seeing the bodies stacked within a half-mile-long trench, do you rejoice at Yahweh's power? Or shudder? Or both? In the years after this rescue, Judah will prosper under Hezekiah. Stability. Wealth. Hezekiah will even be miraculously cured when he begs Yahweh to be healed of a life-threatening illness. He will demonstrate great faith, but he will falter. On one famous occasion, for example, Hezekiah will let his pride get the better of him and jeopardize the safety of his people in order to show off his riches. Prosperity can be an even more exacting crucible than adversity. These missteps will be told 
as a part of Hezekiah's story. His complexities will not be whitewashed. But there is grace always with God. When Yahweh remembers Hezekiah's life, he will sum it up generously with these words. Hezekiah relied on Yahweh, God of Israel. He remained faithful to Yahweh and did not turn from following him. And that will be true, even though sometimes it wasn't. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, it was inspired not only by the Bible, it, by the way, gets airtime in three different books of the Old Testament, which may well indicate that it's important to Yahweh. I love that. But not just that, this episode was inspired by a trip I took this summer to the British Museum in London, where I did some research for Holy Ghost Stories. The Assyria exhibit there includes an entire room full of this huge relief carved in gypsum depicting the siege of Lachish. It's incredible. Everything in that scene, uh, in this episode, I took straight from those carvings. The design of the siege engines, the ladders against the city walls, the carts loaded with possessions. Uh, these carvings even show the children riding on top of the carts. And in that collection are artifacts recovered from Lakish itself, including improvised arrowheads made of bone. I was not making that up. Okay, big announcement time. So in the season two premiere, The Story of Jonah, you may remember that I was fortunate enough to license two pieces from an incredible cellist and composer named Kendall Ramsour. Well, I am thrilled to let you know that for months now, Kendall and I have been working together on a Holy Ghost Stories first, a bona fide collaboration. Episode 8, the very next episode of Holy Ghost Stories, will tell the story of Saul's visit to the Witch of Endor. And it will have, drumroll please, an original score composed by none other than Kendall Ramsour. Ha! He's created this music from scratch for this episode of Holy Ghost Stories. Can you hear how big I'm smiling? It's big. Anyway, this episode will drop on Monday, October 25th, just in time for Halloween. I've had my eye on the Witch of Endor since the beginning of Holy Ghost Stories, and I thought, now that's a Halloween story if I ever heard one. I'm telling you, it is. You are going to love this episode. Now, I'm going to be transparent with you. Hiring Kendall to create 30 minutes of custom orchestration was not free, of course. He's performed at the Emmys, he's open for John Legend, he's, uh, he is way out of my league, but he loves Holy Ghost Stories. And he wanted to do this project for half of what his normal fee would be, which is amazing, uh, but that's still $5,000. I'm not gonna lie, I gulped when I saw that number, uh, but my wife said, hey, I believe in Holy Ghost Stories, let's do it. And so I did. It's incredibly important to me to make this storytelling as excellent as I can make it for you. I feel like these stories deserve our best. And Kendall and I, I promise you this, are bringing you our absolute best for this next episode. Now, 
If you want to make sure stuff like this continues to exist, all it takes is to partner with me on Patreon to make it happen. I will do this as long as I can, but we have to do it together. When you become a patron, I get to provide things like this for you. Speaking of which, a huge shout out to the Tours, the highest level Patreon supporters. Boo, Helen, Jared and Kaylin, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric, John, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan and Jamie G. You guys are amazing. Thank you. And thanks to all of you crazy patrons. You are a great team. Patreon.com slash Holy Ghost Stories is the place to go. There is a link in the show notes. Let's get to 200, you guys. Till next time.